0: Well, welcome to the second week of the State of the Church. As has already been mentioned today, Jeff mentioned last week, we're dedicating this whole weekend, this whole morning, the message, to be about community, to be about life groups and community and those things. And one of the reasons we're so committed to life groups is because community is so critical to us being followers of Jesus and becoming more like Him. And that's what we've said we want to be as a church. We want to be people who come together to know Jesus to become more like him, to help others do the same. Another way to say that would be this. This is how important community is. When we're rooted in community, a community that's centered around Jesus and the word of God, when we're rooted in that kind of community, it will help us become more resilient as followers of Jesus. Now, we've talked multiple times before, not just me, other people up here have talked about how we were not made to do life alone. We were made... To be in relationship Relationship with God Relationship with other people So we're going to look together At one of the great stories about community In the Bible It's a story about a paralyzed man And the friends who brought him to Jesus It's in Mark chapter 2 If you want to follow along I invite you to turn there Pull it up on your, uh, on your device The wind has knocked me away from my passage So while we're doing that While you're turning, I want to give you a little bit of context, a little bit of description to get our minds thinking. Some of my musings from this passage come from a book about community by John Ortberg, and it's really helped me to recognize, sometimes I think we see these stories as just a story. And we don't really understand what what possibly is going on there. So I'm going to invite you, before we read the story, to imagine with me for a moment this morning. Imagine what life is like for a paralyzed man. What was it like to be a paralytic in the ancient world? This man's entire life is defined by a mat that's three feet wide by six feet long. He never leaves that thing. Somebody has to feed him or at least bring the food to him. We don't know how much of his body is paralyzed. Someone has to carry him wherever he goes. Someone has to help him change clothes. Someone has to move him, his body, from time to time to keep him from getting bed sores. Somebody has to clean him when he soils himself. It's not a great existence. This man will never know the independence that we prize so fiercely. Nothing probably can be done medically or maybe would have been done. There's no surgeries coming his way, no rehab programs, no treatment centers. He has no way to contribute to society. He just goes through life as a beggar, laid by the side of the road, dependent upon other people to drop coins next to him so he can survive and live another day. I think he probably dreams from time to time. And possibly sometimes in his dreams, he has a healthy body. Maybe he can walk and run and he has a job and he works hard and maybe he's married and he plays with his children and it's wonderful until he wakes up and he stares at the ceiling of a room that he will never walk out of. He looks at his body, this thing that has kept him a prisoner. He looks at the mat that composes his whole world and he knows he's never going to be free not free like he wants to be. He has no money, no job, no influence, probably no family, and seemingly not much of a future. So does he have anything going for him? Well, he has some friends. In fact, he has some amazing friends. In one sense, I would say he's in one of the killer life groups of all time. His friends, in one sense, the story that we're about to read takes place entirely because of his friends. Without his friends, he never makes it to Jesus. He never gets healed. He never gets forgiven. All these things flow out of some very wise decisions that he made years ago to let some people into his life to become part of a community. But I'm actually giving away parts of the story, so let's go there and read it. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. When he had come back to Capernaum, he is Jesus. When Jesus had come back to Capernaum, several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And being unable to get to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And seeing their faith, Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, there's a lot of reasons that I love this story. So much going on here. The crowds, the teaching, there's healing. In a little bit, we're going to see some debating. And there's forgiveness of sin. One of the other reasons I love this story when you put it in context is that this is Jesus introducing the kingdom of God to people. It doesn't say that explicitly here. If you go back a chapter... We're told that Jesus began traveling around and preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God. He began demonstrating it. He just cast a demon out of somebody. So keep that in your mind for just a minute that this is, has to do with the kingdom of God. We're gonna come back to it. Another reason that I love this story is because of the paralytic's friends. I mean, who doesn't wanna have friends like these guys? Let's just take a minute and think about and name the characteristics that these guys have. They're amazing. They're strong, physically strong, probably mentally strong as well, considering their culture we'll get to later. They're caring. They think about other people. We're told that they have faith, and I would say it's a tenacious faith based on the obstacles that they overcome and persevere through the challenges. They're creative. They go hole through the roof. They're not to be denied. They're willing to do anything, not just dig a hole in the roof, but think about the work to hoist a guy up, then lower him down. They're willing to touch and be associated with a, quote, sinner. Now, this last one, that they're willing to be associated with the paralytic, it helps us understand that this group of friends, this community, it probably didn't happen by accident. Because of his physical condition, the deck was stacked against this man of any community forming around him at all. You know, in our day, people with physical challenges often say that the most difficult obstacles that they are faced with are the attitudes of so called normal people. Because these people don't know how to act, they're not sure how to respond, they don't know what to say. Sometimes they just turn away. Sometimes they're unkind. But in the ancient world, it was even harsher. The Greeks regularly disposed of children who were born with physical abnormalities. The Romans actually had a book, a law on the books in the 5th century that said, kill a deformed child quickly. It was a harsh existence. It's amazing maybe that this guy even has lived this long. And in the nation of Israel, he would have dealt with a different stigma because it was commonly associated that people who were suffering physically had brought it on themselves because of their sin. Illness, and especially paralysis, was often, if not always, associated with sin. So the fact that these four guys and the paralytic are friends, it's not an accident. It happened because of the choices That they made at some point in the past in the face of formidable obstacles social stigma inconvenience financial pressure and a high cost of time and energy they chose to become friends they chose to become a community this is what Jeff was Referring to just a bit last week when he, he talked about this idea that people rarely drift into deep community. It requires choice. It requires time. In Acts, in the book of Acts that we studied last year, very countercultural statement at the beginning of Acts as we're seeing the early church begin to form. Here's the statement, real simple. They met together Daily. They met together daily to worship, to pray, to talk to one another, to discuss the apostles' teaching. This early church, this first century community that's beginning in a form that's really beautiful when you read about it in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 and those early chapters. We love that. But I think sometimes we try to create first century community on a 21st century timetable, and that just doesn't work. One of the requirements for community is chunks of unhurried time. You can't just squeeze life group into an already overloaded schedule. It doesn't work. We can't do friendship in a hurry. Can't do parenting in a hurry or marriage in a hurry, and if you try, it wrecks those things. We can't do community in a hurry because it's not possible to listen in a hurry. And it's not possible to mourn in a hurry with those who mourn or rejoice in a hurry with those who rejoice. That doesn't even sound correct. Can't carry someone's mat in a hurry. If you do, you're risking hurting them. And here's the deal. Everyone... Everyone comes with a map. Think for a minute about this paralytic. What must he have gone through in order to be friends with these guys? Internally, I think he probably wrestled with his sense of dependence upon them at times. Maybe he even, from time to time, became jealous of their independence, that whenever they had spent time together, afterwards, they could all just walk home. But he couldn't do that. He had to be carried. I would imagine that maybe from time to time, he wished he could trade places with one of them. He must have struggled with how they saw him in his neediness, in his brokenness. It can be a very vulnerable thing to have someone carry your mat or carry you on your mat. When somebody's carrying your mat, they see you in your weakness. But I think also there's a gift that's formed between these men of trusting vulnerability on the paralytic side and dependable faithfulness on the four friends' side. And it's a beautiful thing. This mat, which society said should have created this gulf between them, instead becomes an opportunity for Acceptance and servanthood and love and care and help. And when people, humans, love and accept and serve one another in the face of weakness and need, community begins to form. Because the truth is, everyone has a mat. What do I mean by that? I think the mat represents, it's a picture of human brokenness and imperfection and need and weakness. Maybe your mat is your temper that you just can't seem to control. Maybe your mat is is fear or worry about the future, about your finances, about what's going to happen to our country, what's going to happen to our world, what might happen to my kids, my grandkids. Maybe your mat is your inability to trust, to trust God, to trust anybody else. Something at some point in your life broke in you and you struggle so hard to do that. Or maybe it's your need to be in control all the time. Maybe your mat is your inability to share your feelings with others. Or maybe it has to do with something you did a long time ago that nobody knows about, you've never told anyone, you still feel terrible and guilty about it. Maybe that's your map. Or maybe it's a sense of failure in your life or inadequacy or plainness. that My life doesn't really matter. Or maybe it's loneliness for you. See, everybody has a mat. Some of our mats are just not as visible as others. Some of us are better at hiding our mats. So I want to ask you a question this morning, a few questions. Who carries your mat for you sometimes? Meaning, to whom do you show your weakness and your struggle? Who do you ask to pray for you when you really need it? who do you show your brokenness to? See, if we want deep community, we can't always be the strong ones all the time. We have to be willing to show our weakness and our struggle and let other people carry our mats from time to time. And at times it's actually precisely our mats that become the connecting points for deeper relationships and community to form between us. He says, we'll see in this story, it's only when we let others see our mats, when we give and receive help with each other, that healing becomes possible. That's the power of community. That when we bring each other to Jesus so that he can we can be forgiven and healed and made more like him. That's what community can do for us. But back to our story. Let's sum up where we've been. One day Jesus shows up in the town of these four men, and they've heard amazing things being said about Jesus. So, of course, they want to go hear him. They want to maybe see him. And then one of them says to the others, Hey, what if we took John, you know, the guy on the mat, this would be really encouraging to him. So they put their heads together, make a plan, they go stop by him where he's laying, and they say, hey, we're going to come by tonight, we're going to pick you up at 7 o'clock, take you to see Jesus. Now, he can't really say no. <laughs> where is he going to go? Besides the fact that when they show up to pick him up, they actually pick him up. They make their way through town. We don't know how long it is, how long it takes, how much strength it takes. But when they get there, there's a huge crowd. Verse 2 tells us that there was no longer room, even near the door. The place is packed out. And Jesus is speaking the word to them, it says. Now, I think he's proclaiming the kingdom of God, as we were told in the previous chapter. But these guys, their concern is, how are we going to get? There's too many people here how are we going to get him to Jesus? That's their biggest concern. So they put their heads together for a minute. One of them has a crazy idea. And then as Jesus continues to teach, at some point, some mud and reeds start falling down in front of him. And I imagine it interrupts everything. And Jesus sees a man being lowered on a mat in front of him. And I think he looks back up at the hole in the roof. And what does he see there? He sees four sweaty, smiling faces. Full of faith. In fact, we're told he's so amazed by their faith that he turns and he says to the man on the mat, Son, your sins are forgiven. And this just became a whole new thing now. I mean, is that what, do you think that's what the friends were hoping for? They're up there looking down through and they hear, hey, your son, I think they were asking, hoping that maybe their friend would be healed. And what do you think the paralytic is thinking at this point? I mean, I don't think he necessarily signed up to have his sin talked about so publicly. I mean, people talk about him in whispers as they walk by, but man, this is in front of everyone. Side note when you get yourself involved in community and Jesus is right there in the middle of it, your sin will get outed. Your sin issues will begin to surface because in community with Jesus and those who love you, most of what happens to the paralytic in this story is probably going to happen to you. Your sin will get dealt, it'll get named, it'll get dealt with, which sounds really scary at times, and it it is scary. But actually, this is the best gift of all, especially for this man. This man who has been mocked and judged by people almost his entire life. It has been assumed that his deformed and damaged body indicates he is spiritually inferior. This is the man to whom Jesus turns and he says, Son, you are forgiven. You are clean. You are accepted by God. Now here's what I think we struggle with at this point in the story. It seems like Jesus forgives the man based on the faith of his friends. But what about the faith of the paralytic? Doesn't that have to figure in here somehow? I'm going to tell you, hold on. We'll get there. Because there are some other people that are there, and they're observing this, and they have quite a different reaction to this good news. The scribes and the teachers of the law. Now, the scribes saw it as their job to establish clear-cut guidelines and boundaries. They decided what was acceptable and unacceptable to God in all spheres of life. So that the people could live rightly. They could live according to God's will. This is how they saw their job. It was their job. We kind of see them as scornful observers because we kind of know how this story is going to end. And we've seen lots of other things about them in the Scriptures. But in essence, they are correct in their assessment of this situation. Let's put ourselves in their place for a minute. God alone forgives sin. So, to presume to forgive sins is an affront to the majesty of God, and they are right to label it blasphemy. They don't know that Jesus is God, He hasn't even claimed that yet. In their minds, there's only two possible options for this scenario number one, that the kingdom of God has come. They're waiting for the kingdom. As readers, we know that's what's happening. We've been told that. Jesus has been announcing it. So the coming of the kingdom of God is an option. But they also know that the kingdom, when the kingdom comes, it ushers in the forgiveness of sin. Lots of Old, script, old Testament scriptures tell us that. I'm going to mention two of them for you this morning. Isaiah chapter 33, verses 22 and 24, and Jeremiah 31, 34. I'll read them to you. Isaiah 33. 22 through 24 says this For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. And no resident will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Then Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34, where it's talking about the new covenant that God will make with his people it says this they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying know the Lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them and here's why for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more says the Lord so in their minds it's an option the kingdom of God has come but probably not the right option option number two is This is blasphemy, and it's punishable by death. Obviously, in our story, they take option number two. And Jesus, even though they haven't, it it seems like they're they're either whispering amongst themselves or they're thinking about this themselves. And Jesus is going to respond to them because he cares about them just as much as he cares about the man and his roof-crashing friends. So look with me at Jesus' response. We'll start back in verse 7 so we get the context. The scribes are saying to themselves, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up, pick up your mat, your pallet, and go home. And the man got up. And immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is amazing. So Jesus responds to them with a question of his own, a a which is easier question, which is kind of a reflexive type of question when you think about it. Because on the one hand, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you can't really tell physically in the physical world whether that's happened or not. You can't, nothing appears to be different. But, uh, but if you tell a man who's paralyzed, get up, pick up your mat, and go home, well, you better do that. That better happen, or you're in trouble. Now, on the other hand, it's harder to forgive sins. Because to do so. One must have the authority to forgive sin. Here's another way to hear Jesus' question. Which is easier? To make a theological pronouncement about the forgiveness of sins or to provide empirical proof that the man's sins have indeed been forgiven by the virtue of his ability to get up and walk away? Jesus is putting himself to the test of a prophet here. A prophet, when he uttered things in the name of the Lord, if it didn't come true, if it didn't happen, then it was considered, this is a false prophet. This is not a word from the Lord. And that prophet would probably be stoned. So Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to heal this guy so that you know that I have the authority to forgive sin. And the man, he gets up and does it. He gets up and picks up his pallet. He walks out. He is such a great picture of us, of participation, for us, of participation in the kingdom of God. Forgiveness and healing have both been proclaimed to him. But for him to experience it or to participate in it, he must, by faith, get up, pick up his mat, and go home. He has to believe what it is that Jesus had said to him. This is where we see the paralytic's faith. And I want you to just note in this text, whether it's the four men or the paralytic, we don't hear any declarations about their belief, we just see their faith. Because the man does just what Jesus says. And I think the friends are a great picture of participation in the kingdom as well. There was this new teacher with authority. He was proclaiming the kingdom of God. He was demonstrating it, traveling around, healing people, casting demons out of people. And these friends said to themselves, hey, we know somebody who needs this. And by faith, they go get their friend. They carry him. They climb up to the roof. They dig a hole. They lower their friend. They participate in the kingdom. And I think that's what Jesus is recognizing when they're lowering him through the roof. And I think their participation challenged, it strengthened not just the paralytic, but everyone in attendance that day, and probably everyone who heard about it. Because we're told at the end that everyone was amazed. They were all glorifying God, saying, Man, we have never seen anything like this. This is incredible. So, what should our response be? I think our response should be to participate in the kingdom as well, to participate in bringing forgiveness and reconciliation to our world, which includes ourselves, by the way, and each other. Here's what I mean by that. Let me explain that a little bit deeper. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man in this passage. It's actually Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself in Mark, but no one else in Mark calls him the Son of Man. Later, when Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? The Son of Man is not one of the choices they give him. No one's talking about him that way. At the trial later, that's not what Jesus is accused of, being the Son of Man. It's not put on the sign above him when he's crucified. No one else calls him the Son of Man, but Jesus uses the term all over the place throughout the book of Mark. Here's what we learn about the Son of Man. That he has authority to forgive sins, chapter 2, this, this story. That he's Lord of the Sabbath, that's later in chapter 2. That he will be betrayed, suffer ignominy, and death, that's chapter 14 of Mark that he will be raised on the third day. Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. All three chapters contain that information about the Son of Man. The Son of Man comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of power, return on the clouds, and gather his elect. Mark 13 and Mark 14. Now there's no consensus among scholars as to what this title was supposed to conjure up in the minds of first century Israelites. But most of them believe, most scholars believe it has something to do with Daniel chapter 7. Because in Daniel chapter 7, there's a description of one like a son of man, which means a human being. But the description also contains divine imagery because this one like a son of man rides on the clouds, which is something only God does in the scriptures. So In Daniel 7, this one like a son of man is the representative of God's true people. He is opposed by the forces of evil, but God vindicates him, rescues him, proves him to be right, and gives him authority. In Daniel, the authority enables him to dispense God's judgment, which is exactly what he does here in Mark chapter 2, now we think of judgment as a negative thing, that God's going to come and judge people and pay them what they, what they deserve. But the judgment that Jesus has the authority here to give is grace, forgiveness, and healing. It's a beautiful thing. Jesus has the authority to dispense God's forgiveness. As followers of Jesus, we are called to be for the world what he was for Israel. We have to find ways of bringing healing and forgiveness to those around us. And that starts with us bringing each other to Jesus. It starts with us being like the four friends of the paralytic. And at times, it starts with us being the paralytic. Being willing to admit our neediness. Being willing to admit that I'm broken. I don't get everything right. I need Jesus. I need help. Sometimes I'm judgmental. Healing and forgiveness and drawing strength and encouragement, it rarely happens outside of Jesus, and it rarely happens outside of community because we were made for community and relationships. So can I guarantee you this morning that if you step into a life group this session, you will experience a beautiful, amazing experience like this guy had? No. Because life groups are made up of paralytics. We just don't show our neediness as overtly. But if you don't join a life group, if you don't have people around you, somebody that can come and support you, deeper community that connects with you, there may not be anyone to carry your mat when you need it the most. And I know it's risky to step into something new, to step into a group where you may not know anybody. But as my stepfather used to say to my mom all the time, he would look at her and he would say, Baby, life is a risk. All of life is a risk. So can I encourage you this morning to take a risk on a life group if you're not already in one? To try to become a part of a community where you can do this for others and they can do it for you. Because these kinds of communities still exist. They're not always easy to be a part of. People's mats are heavy sometimes. They're awkward to carry. And there's always a roof of busyness or fear or conflict that needs to be crashed through. But if you want to experience community, you can't stay on the edges of the crowd You have to dig through the roof until you find yourself in the presence of Jesus himself. But once you meet the living and forgiving God in Jesus in your particular situation, you'll find yourself, I think, like this man, on your feet, going out into the world in the power of his love to offer healing and reconciliation and good news to others. And then we started today. I ask you to imagine with me what life was like for the paralytic in the ancient world. So as we close, I'd like to ask you to imagine with me one more time. Imagine the paralytic who's now healed as he becomes an old man. He reaches 80, 90 years old. All of the friends from his group are using canes, walkers, his legs are still going strong because he got a new set partway through his life. And as the years go by, his friends, each one of them begins to pass away. And each time one of them passes, he finds himself staring at his mat that's rolled up now and in the corner of his house. And as he looks at it, He remembers that little group of friends, that community that was willing to crash through a roof to bring him to Jesus. This man's greatest gift, humanly speaking, it wasn't his legs, it was his friends, it was his community, because there is no gift like the gift of community. And community is what we get to offer one another. So, here's how we're going to kind of close this time. And some of you are going to feel really awkward about this because I didn't tell you about it ahead of time. But if you're leading a life group this session, I want to invite you to come down here and stand on the floor. You don't have to come up here on the stage. I want to invite you to come down here and stand on the floor. Go ahead and get up, start walking down here. If you're involved in leading a life group, I'm going to invite Ryan Harmon, our lead pastor. And he's going to come up and he's going to pray. For these people who have said, hey, I will try to create a community. This place where people can be centered around the word of God. They can be centered around Jesus. Where authenticity and vulnerability and help and encouragement and forgiveness of sins can take place and be proclaimed to one another. I'm going to ask Ryan to pray for them, but I'm also going to ask Ryan to pray for everyone here. As we set out, on another year of pursuing Jesus, of bringing each other to Jesus and giving each other the gift of community. Ryan. Thanks, Matt.
1: Will you join me as we take this reflection on community and we bring our requests before our Father together and we lift up these leaders, but we also uh, turn all of our hearts, all of our desire for community to our Father and ask Him to do that among us. So let's pray together. Our Father, we, we are thankful. We are a thankful people that you have made us your own. That through your Son, you have restored us, you have redeemed us, you have set us free from the bondage of sin and death. And we will always be a thankful people, abounding in thanksgiving. You made us for yourself and you have done what is necessary to bring us back to yourself. And we praise you for doing what only you can do. We thank you also that you didn't restore us only to leave us out on an island and say, now just follow me by yourself. Lord, you made us for one another. You made us for a community. And we are so blessed to live in this place where we are surrounded by so many other faithful brothers and sisters, and so we do praise you for that. And Lord, we ask that you by your spirit would, would unify us, would unite us, make us one, all under Christ. So we pray for the work of these leaders and we pray for the life groups that they will lead. Father, help them, help them not to carry a heavy burden, but to trust you to bring about the goodness and the life in their life group that, that you have called us to help them to just be faithful servants, faithful servants of you, turning people back to you, just as these friends did for this paralytic. Pray for those in their life groups, Lord, that they would experience deep and rich community in Christ that can be found nowhere else. And Father, finally, I pray for us all as, this, as a church, Lord, we want to be not just an assembly, not just a gathering of people. We want to be a community. For some of us, uh, we are living lonely lives. But it is terrifying sometimes to step into the vulnerable place of being known. And so we pray that for those of us that struggle with that, would you give us courage? Give us courage to step in, to be known, and to know others. That we might meet and experience you through this beautiful thing that you have done in creating a community in Christ. Because of Christ and through Christ. And so, we ask that. So Lord, we pray all these things. Pray that we would represent you for your glory and that we would do, well, that you would do this among us as only you can. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.